I'm going to read the scripture verse for us today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11. It should be behind me as well. I'm going to read it for us. Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thanks, Craig. Good morning, everyone. So right now we are in this series called telos. Um, Telos is a Greek word that means ultimate uh, object or aim or goal. And the idea with this series is that in this first month of the year, we are thinking about what is our telos? What is your telos? What is your ultimate object, or aim, or goal. And in the first three uh, Sundays of this series, we are sort of thinking about it in the negative. What, are, what should not be your uh, ultimate object, aim, or goal? And we're doing that by looking at this temptation story of Jesus in Matthew 4. Uh, two weeks ago, Craig spoke on the first temptation where the devil says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. The temptation of provision. And Craig talked about this uh, idea that we are what we do and, and what a lie that is. Uh, then last week, Jeremiah talked about the second temptation where the devil tells Jesus to throw himself down and be caught, the, the temptation for popularity and how we are living lives often for the crowds and for others. And what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the third temptation where the devil leads Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and offers them to Jesus. Um, It's the temptation of power. So we're going to talk about the temptation of power. But before we actually get to the temptation of power, I want to spend a little bit of time and just talk about this passage as a whole because What Matthew is doing in these 11 verses is really incredible and really interesting. So we're going to have a little bit of of Bible nerd time um, because I want to show you what Matthew's doing here because what he's doing is he's making tons of connections in this passage with the Old Testament 
and specifically with the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Okay? Uh, Let me remind you what happened in the Old Testament in case you forgot at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, Israel is in slavery in Egypt, right? And we get the really famous story. Moses is called in the burning bush, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, eh, I don't think so. And so we get the ten plagues, and Pharaoh lets the people go. So the Israelites leave Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea, right, water on each side of them. They go to Mount Sinai, and God is there. And God gives them the laws and the Ten Commandments. They end up staying at Mount Sinai for about a year, a little more. And then they go up to the promised land, to the land of Palestine that God had promised to give them. They're about to go conquer the land. And what they do is they take 12 spies and they send the spies into the land to scope it out and see what they should do. When the spies come back, 10 of the spies are like, you know, the people who live there are like, really tall and strong, and we don't think we can take the land. And only two of the spies say, no, we can take it because God is with us and God will fight for us. So what happens is the Israelites end up siding with the ten spies who don't trust God. So as a result, God says to the nation of Israel, you're going to spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until all of the generation that didn't trust me, dies, and then the new generation will go in and take the land. There are a ton of similarities between that story and the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. The first and most obvious one is that both of these happen in the wilderness, right? Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and it's there that he is tempted. Uh, The next connection is the, the number 40. Uh, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and the temptation of Jesus begins with him fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Right? There's, there's a lot up there. Okay? We're going to go through them. Um, not only just these like key words like wilderness or 40, but the sort of entire way that the Gospel of Matthew begins reminds us of the story of Israel. Because in uh, the second half of Matthew chapter 2, we get the story of Jesus and his family fleeing, uh, Beth- Beth- fleeing Palestine to go to Egypt because King Herod is trying to kill all these babies. So they flee to Egypt, and then eventually they come back. Right, So Jesus has come back from Egypt just like Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt. And then uh, right before the temptation story in chapter 4, at the, so at the end of chapter 3, we get the story of Jesus being baptized by John. So Jesus comes out of Egypt and goes through the waters of baptism in a way that's really similar to how Israel came out of slavery in Egypt and then passes through the waters of the Red Sea. If we had more time, I could show you that there are a number of connections in Matthew between the baptism and Israel going through the Red Sea. Okay, so does this make sense? There's like all these connections going on here. Um, And if those connections aren't enough, we have some more, right? Israel in the Old Testament is often called God's 
son. Twice in this passage in Matthew, Jesus is called God's son. Jesus is tempted three times. Each of these temptations has a corresponding event to what happened in Israel in the wilderness. Right? So uh, at one point while Israel is in the wilderness, they get really hungry and they complain to Moses. And they're like, Moses, why did you bring us from Egypt? We had more food there. So what happens is God provides for them this bread-like substance that's called manna. Um, it's, really, it's actually a really funny name because the word manna in Hebrew means what is it, right? So <laughs> they just like walked out and they saw this stuff that had fallen from the sky and they said, what is it? And that's what it was. It was manna, right? Um, so God gives them this bread, this manna from heaven, and Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus' second temptation to throw himself down is a temptation to test God. Jeremiah talked about this last week. That corresponds to what happened to Israel at Massa, where they tested God. And then this third temptation, Jesus is tempted to worship Satan or the devil, which corresponds to something we see all all over the Old Testament, where Israel is tempted to worship foreign gods. Right? And there's actually a couple more connections. <laughs> if this isn't clear enough for you, Jesus quotes from the Bible three times in Matthew chapter 4. He quotes from the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verse 7, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in verse 10, Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So the three passages of scripture that Jesus quotes from are all from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. You know what stories being told in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8? The story of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Okay? So, why am I spending all this time pointing all of these connections out between what's happening in Matthew 4 and the Old Testament? There's kind of two reasons I want to highlight this. First of all, I just want to show you that the Bible is dope, okay? (laughs) Um, When we start reading this text carefully and thoughtfully, it is incredibly rich. And there is everything that is in this text is there for a reason, and there is theological value to, to every single word. Right? And if we take the time and the effort, and I know it takes a lot of effort, um, we will be richly rewarded for the time that we give to this text. But second, this is really important for understanding what Matthew is doing in the gospel as a whole. Right? We have four gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's really interesting is that on one hand, these four Gospels all tell the same story, right? The story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. But on the other hand, they don't tell the same story because um, there's all sorts of differences between them. Some some will tell one story that others will leave out, or they might tell the same story in a slightly different way, or they might tell the, the, the events in a slightly different order. 
And the reason they do that is because each one has its own theological viewpoint and message that it's trying to communicate. Each one wants to tell us something specific about Jesus. And Matthew is trying to tell us above everything else that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the hopes and the dreams and the promises of Israel, that everything Israel went through, every promise God made to them, all of the covenants are fulfilled in Jesus. So he begins, or nearly begins his gospel, with this connection with Jesus and Israel in the wilderness, because what happened with Israel in the wilderness was one of the worst failings for Israel. It was one of their worst moments ever. Think about it. They had been given this promise. God made this promise to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give them this promised land. And then they went into slavery in Egypt. But then God brought them out of slavery in this incredible way. Right? If anyone had seen God working miraculously, it had been those people. Right? They had seen the ten plagues that God uh, did to Egypt. They had seen the walls of water as they walked through the Red Sea. When they were at Mount Sinai, they saw God come upon uh, the mountain and fire and smoke, and they heard God speaking with Moses. I mean, they had this great promise and this great experience of God, and then they get to the promised land, and they don't trust him. It's really, it's really incredible that they had gone through all of this and then they failed and didn't trust God. And so what Matthew does in chapter 4 is he says, Jesus did the same thing. He did the same wanderings and temptations in the wilderness, but where Israel failed to trust God, Jesus succeeded and trusted God. In the ways that Israel fell short, Jesus succeeded. And he's saying that Jesus is the the recapitulation of Israel. He is the new Israel. He's fulfilling everything they've done. He's making right everything that went wrong with Israel. Sisters and brothers, isn't it good to know that in every way that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded? What you have gone through, and in the times you have not trusted God, Jesus has made it right. Okay, so that's um, 10 minutes of just nerding out about the Bible, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 4, lots of really cool things. We are going to get to what we're supposed to get to today, which is this third temptation uh, that the devil gives to Jesus. I just want to read again this third temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Again, the, ge- the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, 
and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So what we're saying this morning is that this third temptation is the temptation for power. The devil comes to Jesus. He brings Jesus to this exceedingly high mountain, this place where uh, he can see all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And Satan says to Jesus, Jesus, you can have all of this. The temptation is for Jesus to take everything in this earthly domain under his own control, under his own authority, for his own power. And I think it's pretty clear that we often face the same temptation, the temptation to gain power for ourselves. I think we have to ask two questions about this temptation of power. The first question we have to ask is how are we seeking to amass power? In your life, how are you seeking to gain power? I know this might make uh, some people uncomfortable, but you, you just can't talk about Christians and power without talking about what's going on in our political landscape today. I mean, I think if, if there's anything that has become clear over the past two or three years, it's how much Christians are willing to compromise to gain political power. I think this is probably something that's been true for um, especially Christians of color. They've probably known this for a really long time, but it's become especially clear to white people recently <laughs> how much we are willing to compromise to gain power. There was this really great article in The Atlantic uh, last April um, called Trump and the Evangelical Temptation. If you haven't read it, you should Google it and read it. At one point, the author uh, says this. He says, For a package of political benefits, these evangelical leaders have associated the Christian faith with racism and nativism. They have associated the Christian faith with misogyny, and the mocking of the disabled. They have associated the Christian faith with lawlessness, corruption, and routine deception. They have associated the Christian faith with moral confusion about the surpassing evils of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. Regardless of, of which party you stand with, the fact that Christians are willing to excuse this, these terrible forms of immorality and racism and sexism for the sake of political power is something that we cannot stand for. It is something that we must call out as evil. It is something that we must reject, and it is something that all of us, and to be quite frank, especially us, those of us who are white, we need to be cl- make sure we are not complicit in what is happening. How are we seeking to amass power? Obviously, this is a question that goes beyond uh, the political. A kind of silly example of this, uh, 
Last week, I watched the uh, Fire Festival documentary. Have, have any of you, have you guys seen that? If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Okay, it's just amazing. Um, I'm not going to say too much in case you haven't seen it, uh, but basically it's the story about this guy whose name is... What? Brandon? Billy. 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 Yeah, Billy McFarland. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Billy McFarland, who basically pulls this huge scam where he, like, pretends to buy this island in the Caribbean and put on this like music festival and he sells tickets for tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars and then the people get there and it's this like, it's this totally crappy area with just like these dinky hurricane shelters. I mean, it's, it's insane. But when you watch this, you realize Billy McFarland, he's not really in it so much for the money. I mean, he kind of is. But it's more, the reason he's doing it is because of the lifestyle and the power that he thinks the money and that he thinks this sort of festival will get him. And he's almost unaware of how he's seeking power and how he is screwing over just a ton of people in order to gain this power. For me personally, one of the ways I see myself trying to gain power is through what I do. I am a PhD student in New Testament, and unless something totally unexpected happens, in a couple of years, uh, I will be Dr. McGuire, right? (laughs) And, uh, I mean, yeah, there's a part of that that I really enjoy in some healthy ways, I think, but then there's definitely a part of me that when I think about, you know, getting the title of doctor, um just fills me with an incredibly unhealthy pride. And there's a part of me that is excited about using that title and the authority and the power it gives me to hold my knowledge and my expertise over other people or to see myself as better than other people or to be able to walk into a room and have control. And I have to fight that. What about you? How are you trying to gain power? Are you trying to gain power by climbing the corporate ladder? Are you trying to gain power through amassing wealth? Are you trying to gain power through titles like me, whether the title is doctor or manager or vice president? How are you trying to gain power in your community in your family, maybe even in this church. As we look at this temptation of power, we have to ask ourselves, how are we seeking to amass power? But then we also have to ask ourselves, how are we using the power that we have? How are we using the power that we have? The devil takes Jesus to this high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms and all of their splendor or all of their glory. And the temptation isn't just to take all the kingdoms, but it's to take all their glory. The temptation is for Jesus to get this power and for him to use it for his own glory. 
And that's what a lot of us want to do. We want to take power and use it to exalt ourselves or promote ourselves in some way. All of us in this room have some amount of power. We have some amount of influence. Some more than others, but how are you using that power and the influence that you have? For whose sake? For what aim? For what telos are you using your power? Thankfully, in this passage, Jesus offers us two solutions, one for each of these questions. To the question, how are we seeking to amass power, Jesus offers this solution. Worship the Lord your God. Worship. Worship is the antidote to amassing power. Because think about what happens when we worship. When we worship, we enter into the presence of of God Almighty, the creator of the universe. The God who calls out the stars one by one. The God who, if you remember Job 38 from a couple weeks ago, the God who lays the earth on its foundations, the God who tells the sun to rise every morning, the God who sends lightning bolts on the way, the God who literally holds everything together. When we worship, we enter his presence and we are put in our rightful place. And we are humbled before the presence of God Almighty and we realize that the one who should have all the power is not you and it sure as heck isn't me, but it is God who rightfully has all of the power, who should have all the power, and who will use the power rightly. Worship puts us in this humble state before God, and it curbs our desire to want to amass more power. It's worth asking yourself if this is true, how you can live a life that's characterized by worship. What does it mean for you to take time during your day for worship? Do you have have free space? Can you carve out time for you to worship? Whether it's in silence or with music or in prayer or during a commute or whatever? How can you curb your desire to amass power by increasing your time spent in worship? So the first solution to seeking to amass power is to worship the Lord your God. The second solution, which is about how we use power, is when Jesus says, serve him only. How are we supposed to use the power that we have? We use it in service to the Lord. And using it in service to the Lord means simultaneously that we are using it in service to others, especially those who are vulnerable and marginalized. 
Are you using your power for your own glory or for God and others? See, part of what you have to realize in this whole temptation story is that each of these three temptations, Jesus could have done. And in many ways, Jesus rightfully could have done. Right? Jesus obviously could have turned stones into bread. Jesus could have commanded angels to catch him when he fell or if he did that. And Jesus, in some ways, deserves all of the kingdoms of the earth and their splendor, right? He's Jesus. And in fact, by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in the, in the last couple of verses, in chapter 28, in the Great Commission, some of you may know this text, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So by the end of the Gospel, Jesus has kind of gotten what Satan is offering him right now, right? Jesus has gotten all the authority in heaven and on earth, but notice how he gets it. He doesn't get it by falling down and worshiping Satan. He gets it by way of the cross. Jesus ends up gaining the power and authority by way of of the cross. And this is a theme throughout Matthew and the other Gospels. When Jesus calls his disciples, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Right? Jesus gets the authority, but he gets it through the cross. The way of the cross is not a way of self-aggrandizement, It's not self-gratification. It's not pride. The way of the cross is the way of self-denial. It's the way of service. It's the way of humility. Following the cross means lowering ourselves before God and others. Following the cross is the way of self-sacrifice. Friends, how are you seeking to gain power? It can be a hard question to answer, but I would encourage you to spend some time really reflecting on it. And then to spend some time in worship, to put yourself in the right position before the God who has all of the power. And then, sisters and brothers, how are you using your power? Are you using it for your own glory? Or are you following the way of the cross, a way of self-denial and self-sacrifice to use your power for God and others? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Truly, you are the Lord, the King, the Sovereign God over all. Truly, you are the one who has all of the power and all of the glory in all of the universe. And God, surely you are greater than we could possibly know or imagine. And Father, we confess to you this morning that we are a people who 
much too often are hungry for our own power, that we often seek power ourselves, and we often compromise on our values in our effort to gain power, whether it's through the political sphere or our career or our family or our community or sometimes even the church. God, we confess the ways that we have inappropriately tried to gain and use power. And Lord, this morning we offer ourselves to you and we turn our power over to you. May we be a people who are characterized by self-denial and self-sacrifice. A people who put you, who put those you love, who put the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed before ourselves. God, devote us to being servants of your power so that you might be exalted above all things. In Jesus' name we pray.